With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. France has been rocked by protests and strikes as President Emmanuel Macron has pushed his signature policy of raising the retirement age. It would be easy to lean on the stereotype of the French being work-shy, but our correspondent sees something deeper. And your Wi-Fi router lets you work, watch movies, talk to people, basically do whatever you need to do online. But the signals it sends out also paint a picture of its surroundings, including people in the room. That could prove useful for espionage. But first... Scotland's government has found itself in a bit of a crisis. Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the ruling Scottish National Party, or SNP, has said she'll step down after eight years as First Minister, the country's most senior politician. Since my very first moments in the job, I have believed that part of serving well would be to know when the time is right to make way for someone else. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. The SNP has ruled Scotland since 2007, and Ms Sturgeon first took power in 2014, just after a referendum for Scottish independence, in which Scots voted to remain part of Britain. For as long as the United Kingdom has been united, many in Scotland have been railing against the idea of rule by politicians in London. Like Wales and Northern Ireland, Scotland has its own parliament and control over plenty of issues, such as education and the environment. But a sharper separatist streak remains, and few Scottish leaders have rallied it in the way that Nicola Sturgeon has. She's long wanted another vote for independence. Individual polls come and go, but I am firmly of the view that there is now majority support for independence in Scotland. But that bid has run into serious problems. Her stepping down raises all sorts of questions. Is independence impossible? What is her party for, if not for that? And how does all of this reflect on Britain more broadly? Nicola Sturgeon has been a monumental force in Scottish politics and consequently for the politics of the United Kingdom. Matthew Holhouse is The Economist's British politics correspondent. 
She is the longest serving First Minister of Scotland. She was the Deputy First Minister for a long time before then. During her time in power, she really entrenched the SNP as the dominant force in Scottish politics, holding government in Holyrood as well as holding the majority of Scotland's seats in the UK Parliament in Westminster. And she has been pushing the campaign for a second referendum on Scottish independence. And so her departure has big consequences, not only for the governance of Scotland, but the future of the United Kingdom more broadly and whether it holds together. And why has she decided to step down? Sturgeon said that after eight years as First Minister, she'd simply had enough of the job. My point is this, giving absolutely everything of yourself to this job is the only way to do it. The country deserves nothing less. But in truth, that can only be done by anyone for so long. For me, it is and that the polarisation in Scottish politics was becoming an obstacle to her objectives of securing independence. And in that sense, she said that she was part of the problem. In recent months, her campaign to get a second vote on independence really has been running into some pretty serious obstacles. The Supreme Court clarified in November that Scotland's parliament could not unilaterally legislate for a referendum. That was something that was always implicit in the devolution legislation and, and was made explicit. And she'd run into difficulties most recently over the policy on trans people in Scotland again, which had divided her party. And so when she is gone, what do you think her legacy is for Scotland, for the SNP? So she leaves behind a really sort of calcified electoral block for independence. More or less half the Scottish population favour independence, more or less favour the union. There isn't a huge pool of undecided voters in the middle of that. Now, that was not a foregone conclusion. After the referendum of 2014, in which Scots rejected independence, the issue could simply have fizzled. People might have lost interest and returned to focus on other things. That didn't happen, in partly because of the nature of that referendum, but also because Sturgeon ensured that it remained the dominant divide in Scottish politics. SNP membership surged on her watch. But this entrenchment, whilst it does provide a mass movement for independence and some would argue a, a footing on which it can build, really did become a ceiling on the aspiration for independence because simply securing half the population was never enough. You could not build a new country on 51% of the vote. As she used to acknowledge, setting Scotland on a course for independence required a much bigger share of the population, 60% or more. Now, it became pretty apparent in recent years that that wasn't going to happen. And as this entrenchment really set in, public debate became bitter and toxic. And Scottish politics, which had always been pretty combative, became more combative still. So the biggest part of her legacy here is to have that determined block of voters in, in favour of independence and one just as big against. What does her departure mean for that very question, do you think? Well, the, the cause of independence is in something of a tricky spot at the moment, because despite the fact that it, it does have this large calcified block of support for independence, the mechanism for translating that into a referendum on independence and then actually ensuring that referendum does lead to independence is not clear at all. And the problem that the independence movement has is that the law has now been cleared in the United Kingdom that a referendum can only take place with the agreement of the British government, and this British government does not want that to happen. So this presents a big strategic -like dilemma for the SNP on the way forward, and this was something on which Nicola Sturgeon was losing control of the argument in her final months.
After the Supreme Court ruled that there could be no unilateral Scottish referendum, she changed tack slightly and embraced an idea which had been in circulation amongst the more radical members of her party, which was to go for a de facto referendum to use an election as a, as a show of support. But that doesn't have widespread support within her party either. People fear it will be a road to nowhere. And so whoever follows her has this big strategic question to settle. They've got to marry the aspirations of the members with the concerns of MPs. This is all going to come to a head if it goes ahead with a conference which has been penciled in for mid-March. She seems to think that her efforts are are not doing the party, that movement, much of a favour. But you mentioned that there were other things going on politically that have helped to push her out. Yes, indeed. And it's important not to overstate unpopularity, as it were. You know, polls actually suggest that she does have pretty good approval ratings still among Scots. She's absolutely beloved by many of the SNP activists. Notwithstanding that, there was very much this sense that her control of the party was slipping and that her time was coming up. It was clear that Nicola Sturgeon's hold on the SNP was loosening during the the, uh, row over the Scottish government's policy of changing the regime for the ability of trans people to self-identify so that Scotland would have a less restrictive and more liberal regime than in England. Now, this really was a fusion of perhaps the two most combustive issues in British politics, one being Scottish independence and and the capacity of the Scottish Parliament to legislate as it wishes, the other being the government's policy on people who are, are trans. The policy was passed, although with great internal debate within the SNP and differences within the Scottish government about whether this was the right course. However, it was then blocked by the British government, uh, which said that it would interact poorly with the UK-wide regime on equalities. Now, that might have been a moment at which you would have had this great surge of support behind the Scottish government and really cemented this idea that Scotland is on a different path to the rest of the UK and that its legitimate right to legislate for itself was being interfered with. In the end, it appeared to have backfired on Sturgeon because the introduction of this policy coincided quite coincidentally with a big row in Scotland over whether a double rapist who was transgender should be placed in a woman's prison. And Miss Sturgeon, who had normally looked so sure-footed, so able to position herself on these issues, suddenly looked quite cornered on this, suddenly looked like she wasn't in command of this policy. And so that really did cement the idea that she wasn't quite on top of her party and on top of, of her policy as she historically has been. So do we have a sense who will take the party over from her and, and what their priorities ought to be? We don't, and that in part is a product of the dominance of Sturgeon in running the SNP and the Scottish government, that there isn't an obvious successor in place. And pole position, the standout star coming through the ranks is Kate Forbes, who's the incumbent finance minister. She's only 32 years old. She was educated at Cambridge. The one question mark around her is that in a country which is pretty socially liberal, and amongst the nationalist movement regards itself as perhaps more liberal than much of England. She's actually a a religious social conservative. If the party wants to go for a a safer pair of hands, perhaps a more veteran figure within the nationalist movement, they might look to Angus Robertson, who's been a close ally of Sturgeon for many years. Now, in truth, the contest is likely to be dominated on this question that Sturgeon failed to resolve of how you break the deadlock on Scottish independence. 
So it's clear this creates a, a real problem within Scottish government. But what about the, the British government more, more widely? What does her departure mean, do you think, for, for British politics in the more general sense? Well, south of the border amongst unionists, there was real jubilation at Sturgeon going. Now, it's partly because she becomes something of a, of a bête noire for unionists because she was such an effective politician. Now, the immediate beneficiary might be Rishi Sunak, because whilst he was under pretty little pressure to agree to an independence referendum after the Supreme Court's judgment, he is now under even less pressure to agree to one. However, the big potential victor is Keir Starmer, who is the leader of the Labour Party, the UK's main opposition party, which used to win huge numbers of seats in Scotland and has not since the SNP became the dominant force there. Now, there are two effects which buttress each other that could come into play here, his people hope. They hope that if the SNP is weakened in Scotland, he can position the Labour Party as the best party to get rid of the Tories down south. If he can get that dynamic in play then he can say to English voters, look, you need not worry about an SNP government in Scotland. Independence isn't going to happen. There's not going to be a referendum on it. And therefore, in England, you can vote Labour safe in the knowledge that it will not lead to an independence referendum by the back door. Now, if he can get those two dynamics in play, then that potentially for the Labour Party is a virtuous circle. We saw Keir Starmer yesterday pay very, very generous tributes to Nicola Sturgeon for all her years in office. That is because he knows that a great void has now opened up in the top of Scottish politics. Lots of voters may be coming into play and he would very, very much like to fill it. What about more broadly still? What does it mean to you that such a storied leader should be stepping down now? There is a big shift taking place in Britain. It could be argued it is now at a point of peak populism, that a great moderation is underway. So if you remember in 2016, you had the push for Scottish independence. You had the rise of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. You had the Brexit referendum. And then you had the radicalisation of the Conservative Party. Something that I think possibly has consequences beyond the UK and the UK as a first mover in this is that all those forces are going into reverse. So you see in Scotland a big question over the future of the independence movement without Nicola Sturgeon. You see the Labour Party has utterly transformed itself under its leader, Sir Keir Starmer. You see the support of the British people for Brexit really waning and the space opening up for a new relationship with the EU. And you see the, the Tory party trying to clean itself up with moderate success in the form of Rishi Sunak, who says that he's the guy who's going to you know, restore clean and sensible government again. So it is possible that the UK will be part of a trend of countries that have been through the populist storm and whose electorates are now looking for something different again. Matthew, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. You know the stereotype. A leisurely breakfast at a sidewalk cafe 
a long lunch with friends over a glass of wine or two, a spell at a cafe, reading or just watching the world go by. For better or for worse, the French have a reputation for lives well lived. But one of their number has something else in mind. President Emmanuel Macron would like his fellow citizens to value work more and to do it for longer. His proposal is to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. That has elevated French insouciance to outright French anger, leading to protests and strikes that just keep going. Well, all trade unions in France back further industrial action, and it's not just the unions that are making a fuss. Most opposition parties are also resolutely against the raising of the retirement age, and so is a majority of the French population. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. Now, the government says the reform is indispensable if the pension system is to balance its books and if France is to preserve its generous pensions. People today, though, are living nearly a decade longer than they did in 1980. But in another level, the proposal is about a lot more than working a couple more years before retirement. It's really part of a much larger debate within French culture about the meaning of work. So let's wind back a bit and talk about the debate as it stands. We've spoken to you before, but what what are the two camps? Well, there are two sides. There's Macron, his government. They want to raise the overall employment rate in France and achieve full employment by the end of his five-year term. Now, that means getting people of all ages to work more, not just older people. One member of parliament for his party told me that pension reform is central to the campaign objective of bringing about full employment and raising the employment rate of older workers. Now, Macron's opponents argue that progress towards a better society is measured by the easing of the burden of work. And one Green opposition leader in particular called Sandrine Rousseau has stirred up a debate by claiming that the French have the right to be lazy. Isn't it just a a little bit of a stereotype, a bit outdated to be thinking about that in those terms, though, with a right to be lazy? This is what people love to joke about the French. Well, it is, of course, but it does tap into a deep strain of thinking in France. In 1880, Paul Lafargue published a book called Le Droit à la Paresse, or The Right to be Lazy, and he argued for a three-hour working day, and he denounced the madness of the love of work. And it's something that is echoed in modern books as well. If you take Bonjour Paresse, for example, or Hello Laziness, was a book that was published in 2004 and became a bestseller. It was essentially a guide to doing nothing at work. And the author, Corinne Meyer, told readers that they should seek out the most useless positions in a company and then just occupy them and do as little as possible. Okay, so there is um, a rich historical line of thinking of intellectual writing about being lazy, being lazy at work even. How does that then play into this debate? Well, I think the more serious context is that in the post-war period in France, The amount of time that people spend at work and rolling that back has been very much part of the country's story. Think back to the socialist president, François Mitterrand, who cut the retirement age from 65 to 60 years. That was in 1982. And then a couple of decades later, France was the country that introduced famously the 35-hour working week. Now, I think that those changes have had an effect over the years on the way people relate to work. One poll, for example suggested that the share of the French who consider work very important 
dropped from 60% in 1990 to just 24% in 2021. And I think that the pandemic has probably accelerated that shift with people wanting to spend more time doing other things in France, like in plenty of other countries. By last year, only 40% of the French said that they'd prefer to earn more and have less free time. And that's down from 63% in 2008. So if this is such a touchy issue then for the country as a whole, why is Mr Macron poking at it so hard? Well, his main objective is to put the pension system back onto a sound financial footing. It's going to face a deficit of about 14 billion euros by 2030, at the same time as raising the overall employment rate. It's much lower in France than it is in Germany. Some members of his government make this sound like a call to work harder If you listen to Gérald Darmanin, his interior minister, he dismisses the opposition left-wing coalition as a group of people who don't like work and think they can live in a society without effort. But it's also about stopping French companies treating older workers badly. They tend to not recruit people over the age of about 55 if they can. And that's why the government wants to introduce what it calls a senior index, which will monitor the share of older workers on the payroll And the idea is that this could discourage firms from pushing out older workers, as they too often do. And it's also about getting the young into jobs. That's why the government is expanding its apprenticeship scheme. It's had 980,000 apprentices in 2022. That's the highest ever recorded. And it's also changing rules to tighten unemployment benefits. So the overall objective is to try to increase the number of people in work in France. So Mr. Macron is between a rock and a hard place here, where the hard place is very culturally ingrained. What chances do you give him of success? Well, I think there are two things here. One is whether he gets the pension reform through, and it's currently going through Parliament, and that's going to be very difficult as it is because he's lost his majority there. But the other thing is about the cultural change. Now, I don't think it is that impossible to get people to change their attitudes or their the way they uh, operate in France. If you look over the last five years, the share of 55 to 64-year-olds in work has actually increased by five points in France, even if it's still lower than it is in Germany. And there are other things that the French do, which sometimes surprise people abroad. The number of hours they work per week is actually longer than that in Germany. So I think one has to be very careful of the stereotypes. French society is more complex than that. But Macron still has his work cut out trying to persuade them that this pension reform makes sense and that working till 64 in France is something that anyone in France will actually want to do. Sophie, thanks very much for joining us and um, don't work too hard. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. You too. Wi-Fi signals are everywhere in our homes, but we only really think about them when they drop out, leaving us annoyingly disconnected from the online world. But as our wireless routers are constantly feeding out those signals, they could be a valuable new tool for spies who want the ability to see through walls. So essentially, the Wi-Fi signals in your house are like a radio wave. And when those waves are moving around a space, they encounter objects, including human beings. And when they encounter those objects or bodies, they undergo subtle shifts. 
Arthur Holland Michel writes about science and technology for The Economist. These shifts can reveal information about the shape or the location or the motion of those bodies. Think of it a bit like the way a bat's chirps will reveal obstacles or, or prey in its path. So researchers are trying to take advantage of this principle as a means to paint a picture of activities within a room. How are they trying to do this? So there's a team of researchers at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Their names are Jiaqi Zheng, Dong Huang, and Fernando de la Torre. Their idea is to receive these returned Wi-Fi signals and run them through an artificial intelligence algorithm. Now, this algorithm has been trained on signals that have been bounced off people engaged in a variety of known activities. This algorithm was thus able to reconstruct moving digital portraits. These are called pose estimations of all of the individuals in the room. That seems profoundly creepy to me. Why do they want to do this? So the research community that works on what is known as wireless tracking describes a range of different potential applications. So the example that is often given is that if an elderly person falls over, these types of Wi-Fi tracking systems would be able to detect that and send out a notification. There's another team working on a similar technology at Florida State University that suggests that it could be used for interactive gaming or exercise monitoring. But of course, some might argue that these merely cheery distractions from what is much more likely and far more sinister use case for this technology, and that is, of course, surveillance and espionage. So tell us about how it could be used for espionage. A few years ago, a team of researchers from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the University of Chicago demonstrated how hackers could collect leftover Wi-Fi that comes out of the house, the same sort of Wi-Fi that a person might use to mooch off their neighbor's internet, and then decipher those signals to at least detect the presence of people inside. This more recent research by Carnegie Mellon shows that hackers could potentially access much more detailed information about activities within a home through a similar technique. Now, the Carnegie Mellon team declined to tell me who is sponsoring their work, but another one of their projects that's actually looking at detecting human behaviors through video surveillance is paid for by IARPA, which is the U.S. intelligence community's hub for advanced research. And how far along is this development in the use of Wi-Fi? Is it still theoretical or can people actually do the things that you've described? This team from Carnegie Mellon certainly isn't the first to experiment with using Wi-Fi signals to create detailed digital portraits. But if their claims are to be believed, their paper still hasn't been peer-reviewed, but if their results are credible, which they do seem to be, it points to a significant breakthrough. Earlier experiments in this vein had used souped-up 
modified Wi-Fi signals with a higher power to generate fairly rudimentary two-dimensional pose estimations that tracked 17 points on the body. These kind of looked like a moving stick figure that gave you a rough sense of what the tracked person was doing. In this new paper, by contrast, they claimed to have achieved what they call 2.5-dimensional portraits that track a higher number of points on the body. But uh, more significantly, they say that their work has opened up a path to achieving full, highly detailed three-dimensional portraits. And even more significantly, perhaps, they've shown that they are able to do this with regular off-the-shelf Wi-Fi. So they didn't modify the Wi-Fi routers in any way. If this is the case, then this would be a tremendous step in surveillance technology, a, a way to really peer inside some of our most intimate spaces without relying on the traditional methods. All right, Arthur, thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.